0: A hand. He never lets go and that is a that's our hope that we have in this season and every season especially in this one Thanks so much for singing for us uh, ladies and thank you all for singing out and uh, I hope that is true of all of us that we have not let go um, And being here tonight is a testament that uh, we will not um, Lose heart because God will not let go of us. If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to John 15 tonight. We're going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses of this chapter. We'll probably spend uh, two weeks in this text, and we'll try to get through the first 11 verses tonight. I believe that God has a good, ble- has a very special blessing for us. I love this chapter. Some of the most, uh, all of the words of Jesus are great. These are a little extra special, I believe. So you probably can quote some of these verses, and if you can, that's that's great. Maybe you can commit some more to memory. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser or the husbandman. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. One of the most practical verses that you'll ever read in the Bible. One that you should highlight and, and commit to memory. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And for without, for without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. And they, are, they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciple. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Notice how many times he repeats that word abide. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that you're that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Notice that transaction from Jesus to us and in us. Now, from John 14 to John 15, it seems as if Jesus is just continuing his just marvelous teaching that he began back in chapter 13. Um, But there's a clear break from chapter 14 to 15, signaled by his words in verse 31, Arise, let us go from here. And then John goes and begins to continue to tell us what Jesus taught them. But there's a clear break, and I believe a change in setting from 14 to 15. Now, I think we can take this two ways. We'll get to the literal application in just a minute, because it actually has bearing to the subject at hand. But I don't think it's spiritualizing things too much to say that this upper room discourse beginning in chapter 13, running through chapter 17, um, is really kind of a, a, a special kind of um, idea gathering of the, of the ideas or gathering of what it means to be a Christian and the different stages, the progression um, of what it means to be a Christian. You could almost say that John 13 through 17 is a panoramic of the Christian faith. It's a wide shot of the Christian faith as a whole. Now, as John 14 ends, Jesus says, let's move on from this place to another. It suggests with other transition words throughout this that we can take these chapters in this way. Now, consider this. In John 13, Jesus begins this discourse by demonstrating to them something, right? He demonstrates what it means, what he's about to do for for them on the cross. He demonstrates what the faith is all about. God's love for the world. Jesus taking off his outer garment, putting on a servant's towel, washing their feet. He demonstrates what Christianity is all about. He defines Christianity in front of them. So John 13, Jesus defined and demonstrates Christianity, God's love to us and God's love for us. And then in John 14, he gives an invitation to you and I personally. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You trust in God, trust also in me. For God has sent me to reveal to you and invite you into his family. He talks about the basics of being a newborn believer, about our eternal home, about our greater life, and about the amazing peace we have as Christians. And then he encourages us to take the next step. And I believe the next step is outlined in John 15 about our abiding faith, our growing devotion, about our dedication. And then, of course, John 16, we'll learn about trials and struggles that we're going to face, as every Christian will face trials and struggles as they continue on in their walk. Those trials actually strengthen us, we'll learn. Finally, in John 17, we're going to see Jesus lead us in prayer. And in that prayer, he teaches us a key, really the key, Essence of enduring and overcoming whatever this life brings our way that prayer and supplication is so important This is not the end of Christian maturation, but the key to progressing and continuing to walk faithfully so John 13 through 17 you could almost outline it this way. We have a demonstration of our faith an invitation to our faith the idea or what it means to be dedicated And we have a chapter about the tribulations that we face and a chapter about the importance of supplication. So you see, this section is really, again, a panoramic of what it means to be a Christian and some of the key um, phases of a Christian's life and and the constant walk following the Lord. So the transition from 14 to 15 in particular is not just in these spiritual categories, clearly, as Jesus suggests, there is they move from the upper room to somewhere else. But where do they go? Now, all this information joins together in, in these ways that we've broken it down, which is why I believe John does not break the flow. The reason why John does not say they went from here to there because John wants us to get all this information under in one breath of Jesus, right? It's him teaching us what it means to be a Christian, taking us from de- defining it, to taking us to the very end of our faith, growing in faith, going through trials and coming through trials and praying our way through. So he doesn't want to separate that. He doesn't want to break the narrative or break the, the, the dialogue and tell us the narrative details. But we can assume, however, as we'll learn later in John, that chapter 15 and 16 takes place while Jesus is leading the disciples from Jerusalem to to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he'll pray chapter 17. So we believe that chapter 15 and 16 take place on the road. He's teaching them while he's pointing to very important surroundings that would add to their conversation that he pulls from in his preaching. Here are some pictures that will, that will help us kind of understand. Now the upper room, if you can see in the bottom kind of center of the screen, the upper room is, to, is believed to be in a neighborhood just um, south of the Temple Mount. And it's believed that they would have exited the upper room and then crossed um, throughout the city... And then they would have walked down the Kidron Valley, which is what John tells us. The Kidron Valley is where now there's a highway that runs outside the walls of Jerusalem north to um, Galilee. So along the Kidron Valley, they would have walked through that valley, which was was a path of exile in the ancient days. They would walk through the Kidron Valley. They would begin to ascend the Mount of Olives and they would end their time or they would end their walk. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's a picture of kind of the guard of the Kidron Valley, where those buses are in the center of the screen. Is the highway I was referring to? That is the um, the the old Kidron Valley, and they would have kind of went uh, through that sort of uh, that that palace, that old gateway archway that you see at the edge of the screen. They would have went up that hill. They would have ascended um, the Mount of Olives. You see all those trees along the way. There's olive branches. There's vineyards. There's all sorts of of, of awesome um, scenery. And they would have got to the top of the mountain, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is seen here. Um, to this day, you can visit the Garden of Gethsemane, where there is just a, a beautiful um, uh, vineyard. Um, and there is a literal olive press, where olive oil is, is pressed and, and, and produced. And, and of course, we'll talk about the themes and how that uh, resonates as we get through the rest of the story. So they would have went through the winding path up the mountain. Their destination would be this garden. But the subject of chapter 15 would go well um, with both the literal journey and the spiritual perspective. Jesus is going to talk about what it means to be dedicated and grow in our relationship with him. And he uses the scenery, the olive branches, the vineyards, he uses the scenery as a conversation starter for this topic of dedication. So I hope that helps maybe make sense what this chapter is, is about and, and the context for this chapter. This chapter is beautiful without that context, but I think that kind of enriches it um, for us. Again, as they take this serpentine path from the valley to the mountain, Jesus would point to these vineyards. He would point to these vines. He would point to these branches. I'm sure he even dim- took, you know, would stop and would, would be hands-on and show them. He sees this perfect teaching moment, almost as if he had it all planned, Right? Now, hopefully, maybe we'll have a little more context and appreciation for some of the most memorable words that ever came out of Jesus' mouth. Once more, let's read verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Underline that phrase, the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Old King James, in, in ancient English, the word husbandman would, uh, was one who tended to the garden. Husbandry refers to gardening and, and, and tending to the garden. So the father is the vine dresser, the one who plants... And Jesus says, I am the vine that the Father has planted. Now, again, there's so much, there so many layers to this, more than we could ever unpack in just a few, little bit. But this phrase, true vine, is very intentional term, speaking of Jesus. So maybe you're wondering, what, is it, what does true vine mean? Well, Israel is often characterized in the Old Testament as a vineyard. It's often characterized as a vineyard planted by God, literally transplanted from Egypt, planted by God, And grapes and olives are often interchanged in reference to what this vine would produce. If you read the Old Testament, I promise you, read Exodus, read Psalms, read Deuteronomy, read so many Old Testament passages, you'll see the writers, the psalmists, and the prophets refer to Israel as a vineyard planted by God, transplanted out of Egypt, a vine in the ground for his glory. Now, hear this from Isaiah. Isaiah wrote a song about it. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. What was his vineyard? Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. What hill? The Mount Zion, right? That's where Israel, where Jerusalem was um, was, was planted. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. That watchtower, the the, the tribe of Judah, the the kingdom that would come out of Judah. So here Isaiah is, is characterizing Israel as a vineyard planted by God. God dug the ground up. He cleared the ground off. He planted it. He put his eye on it. But hear this. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes or rotten grapes or grapes not fit to eat. Now, the prophets played on this idea of Israel being a vine that began to yield wild grapes or degenerate grapes, degenerating and failing to live up to their true potential. The prophets talked about how God would bring a true vine back to Israel to help cure the old but also build something new and something better. So when Jesus says he is the true vine, and that the Father is the vine dresser, he's saying, hey, I am what God was talking about. Paul will go on to write about this and use it to characterize the church in Romans 11. You should definitely go read Romans 11. You hear this same language of vines and planting. This is one of Jesus' most clear and powerful proclamations in light of what the prophets foretold. So clearly, we're referencing the Old Testament, undeniably connecting the past and pointing to the future. And like I said, there's a lot of layers to this, a lot of branches coming out of this, if you will. So Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I am the true vine that God promised he would plant in this land. And I'm not just going to grow to be for Israel. This vine is going to spread all over the world. Verse 2, though, every branch in me, underline the in me part. That does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So there's this goal to bear fruit, to bear more fruit. But before we deal with those two contrasting points, notice Jesus' words. Every branch in me. Every branch in me. So verse 2, he's unquestionably referring to Christians. He's not contrasting non-believers to believers. He's not contrasting those who are lost and those who are saved. Verse 2 deals with saved people in both point A and, and point B. Because he says, every branch in me. That phrase, in me, is used in the New Testament a lot. Now, Paul would write, the word in Christ you've heard the New Testament use this phrase a lot right in Christ in him it speaks of what it means to be a Christian and notice how it's so personal notice how it uses this vine and branch terminology there's we're in him we're connected to him we have our source from him Romans six eleven: you must consider yourself dead to sin and allied to God in Christ Romans 8 1 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. You picking up on it? Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. Colossians 2, verse 6, therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Now I I challenge you, go home, open your Bibles, no matter what translation you have, you'll find in all the New Testament letters, especially Paul's, you'll find the words in Christ and in him all over the place. In Ephesians and Colossians alone, you'll find it used 34 times. That's a lot. So there's this flow of life from him to us. It's undeniably speaking of an intimate, personal relationship between Jesus and us, between us and him. Now, we all know this, and, and y'all are smarter than this than I am, I'm sure, on this. Fruits bud from within the vine, right? From being a part and as a part of the vine. Now, a modern connection and a modern comparison, would, an analogy would be a, a, a network line or a data line, right? That carries information, that carries internet, that carries phone phone uh, service, right? That line carries and connects us to a source. So notice Jesus' two points here. Every branch in me, the first point, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. Literally, the phrase, the word takes away means to cut off, to take in place somewhere else. Now, this can be a point of contention because clearly he's referring to someone in Christ, a believer, right? So is Jesus saying that if we are fruitless, that we are cut off as in we are lost? Some believe that. Some use this scripture to say that it's proof of that. But again, we look to God's activity with Israel for help because this vine and vineyard analogy is one in the Old Testament so often, and it's one that we see how God refer to in his dealings with Israel. So follow me here. When God would discipline Israel, he would take them out of the land and plant them elsewhere. Now, we're familiar with this, right? What did the, nation, the, tri- the, the, the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, God took them out of Israel and he put them in Assyria. The nation of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. God took them out of Judah and put them in Babylon, right? God took Israel and he planted and he uprooted them and planted them somewhere else. Why did he do that? Because they were fruitless. Because he was disciplining them. Were they no longer his people? They were still his people. Was he casting them out? No, he was putting them in time out. Follow me? So they weren't lost, they weren't unsaved, they were his people, but they were being disciplined. He didn't cut them off from him, he just cut them off from their land and from their comfort. Proverbs 3.12 says, The Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father to the son, or a father to the daughter. So God disciplines his children. God doesn't discipline children. Those that are not his children, just like you don't cross the yard and start disciplining someone who isn't your kid, right? Maybe when your kids were younger or when you were younger, you can remember that your parents, if you were found doing something up to no good with your friend or a neighbor, your parents would often say, I'm going to send them, them home to their, their parents. But once I get you on your own, I'll discipline you or I'll talk to you about what you did wrong. But we don't discipline those who are not ours, right? So God disciplines His children because we belong to Him. So when the, the Scripture says that God takes away those that do not bear fruit, those that are in Him that are not fruitful, it is not saying that God cuts off or forsakes or you know, takes away salvation. It's referring to discipline. Now, the New Testament teaches church discipline. And, and I bring this up because this is something that is completely foreign to the 21st century church. The 21st century church completely ignores this but the teaching doesn't go away and i bring it up because i believe i believe it should still have a place in the church there should still be accountability and the church should still under work with its people and members should be held to a super high standard because we are the light of the world we are the children of god and we ought to reflect and we ought to live up to the standard that our church the bible holds us to but I bring it up because I believe these same principles that the New Testament teaches about church discipline may be principles that God uses in and on us, whether our churches do or not. Now, in the New Testament, the books of Corinthians deal with church discipline almost specifically. Um, Paul refers to a situation in Corinth that really had gotten out of control about a man who had committed some immoral deeds, and, and the church wasn't really taking it serious, and it was bringing the church down. It was dragging the church down. So Paul talks about how this sin needed to be isolated and removed, not to make an example or to to make shameful or to hurt somebody, but so that they would learn. Now, again, I'm not Paul, and you'll never see this in 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 a church in our world. Not that we shouldn't. But here's what Paul said about this guy that had committed this sin. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, again... We want to be New Testament churches, right? Well, let's sign up for that. And I'm not making light of it. Paul's saying to this guy who had committed this awful, awful sin, who was hurting the church, he says to the church, this is serious, that we need to turn him over. You need to take him out of fellowship so that he might learn what he did and so that he might come back stronger than ever. But it wasn't just, hey, make a public example, throw rocks at him. It was a one-on-one, hey, we we care for you, we want to help you, we want to see you get where you should be. Because they took church membership so serious. Now, if you read 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses the same man with good news. And here's what Paul says about that guy in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So these, apparently, Corinth had cast this guy out and he wanted to come back. They wouldn't let him back. And Paul says, no, 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 I didn't mean for you to tell the guy he wasn't ever welcome again. All that was so that somebody might realize how important being a part of local church is. So the New Testament gives us a model to be the hand and feet of Christ, including showing how God disciplines His children. God will use His church, but if the church doesn't do its job, God will do it Himself. You hear that? God will do it Himself. And that's why God does bring trials. He does bring seasons of challenges on His children not to pay us back but to win us back. That's a whole other sermon, but the church, for whatever reason, ignores this. Christians very much ought to be held to these standards, not to the point of being in open shame, but so that the church might aim for higher standards, and that believers might not fall behind. The church needs discipline. The Christians need accountability. We should find that in our local church. Now, Jesus' second point here is a bit less convicting. He says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. It's like, well, hey, didn't I bear it? I mean, wasn't the fruit that I bear it bore enough? No, every day is a new day, isn't it? There's always more fruit that we should bear. Every believer, no matter our fruitfulness, needs constant care from God. We've always got room to grow. We need this ever-cleansing power from God through Christ to us. Verse 3 says you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, but I'm talking about every day there's room for more, there's need, There's more growth that should happen. Now how can we receive this and maintain this cleanliness? Verse 4 says abide in me and I will abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from, of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. Is it can it be any more clear? If you want to grow as a Christian, what must you do? Someone in the parking lot screaming it. Abide. Abide in Jesus, right? If we want to grow as a Christian, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Unless we are connected to the source. We are not going to grow if we are not abiding in in Jesus this is not something that just happens because we're close to somebody else's body than Jesus right your husband can't do this for you your wife can't do this for you your church can't do this for you now those things can help right accountability friendship grow, and, and, and being in community those things can help but those things can't do it for us it's a choice we've got to make Jesus said in John 8 earlier in the book if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what marks us as his? Abiding in him. That word abide, if you go to Webster's or you look up the Greek, you'll find these definitions. Abide means to dwell, to remain, to engage, to function as a part of the whole. That's important. The key that we need to remember as Christians, we will never grow, we will never flourish, we will never progress, we will never become get better and, and get stronger or more mature in, as Christians if we are separate from the whole. The local church is a picture of it, but all this is about being and abiding in Jesus, about our symbiotic, organic relationship of a believer with Christ. There is an inseparable in a necessity to remaining and abiding in Christ. Verse five says the goal is fruit. He said, "I am the vine; you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing." Now you can take that out of that context, and you can use that for any uh, walk of life, and that that's pretty. That's a fair fair use of that. But in the context of this, we will not bear fruit without following and serving and Focusing on the Lord. We want to progress in our characters. We want to bear fruit as believers. We cannot do that apart from Jesus without Jesus. Luke chapter 6 says this. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. The trees are not known for what forest they're in. The trees are not known for what the tree around them bears. They're known by their own fruit. Now, you should be a part of a good church, and you should be a part of a good community group, and you should do things as, you know, there's a lot of things that externally are factors. But there should be a transformation from within. There should be a product from within. We are known by our own fruit. Know this, though. Trees, flowers, and plants do not strain to produce their fl- fruit. This might be the most elementary example I ever give you. But have you ever walked by a tree when it's producing its bud or producing its fruit and heard it straining? I won't do a straining uh, example up here because that's a little bit inappropriate. <laughs> but y'all know what straining is, right? I mean, you're picking something up, right? That's what I'm talking about, not anything else. <laughs> have you ever saw a flower strain to bud? No! You know why? Because producing fruit is a natural overflow uh, uh, from the vine to the branch, right? It's part of its nature. So how can we produce fruit? When we are abiding in Him, it is almost natural. But let's be honest, there's not always good fruit flowing from our lives, is there? Remove our faith and consider the rotten fruit we often bear, and we've got a list, don't we? And I made a list just for you. And I know not all of you produce these bad fruits, but maybe you produce some of them. And I'm sure there are some that I didn't include on my list. I included things that we show externally, things that we deal with internally. I mean, here's some of the rotten fruit that I deal with. Anger, jealousy, greed, bitterness, Hate, retribution, and judgment—those are things that I show, right? Externally, I show anger, I show jealousy, I'm greedy, I'm bitter, I'm hateful. I seek revenge. I show judgment. That's all bad fruit, isn't it? Can we agree? All that's bad fruit. But there's also some internal bad fruit, right? Some things that we don't show outwardly, but we deal with inwardly, right? Emptiness—that feeling of not worth, of that feeling that you're not worth anything, or you're not purposeful fear apathy just not caring about anything that feeling of defeat that pessimistic attitude doubt cynicism and here's something i think the the church really ignores just being the person that always thinks that there's something behind something that you know there's something there that you can't see being cynical about everything and that's something that too many christians deal with in our world today but come on that's bad fruit isn't it We don't want to have that fruit in our lives, but it almost is natural, isn't it? And it is natural. Now, I can lift some more, but y'all probably would rather me stop there, right? In Christ, we aren't slaves to bear or carry or feed on these fruits anymore. I'm not saying that to condemn anybody, but to encourage that there's hope. Apart from Jesus, these are our destiny, but in Christ, we can produce better fruit. Apart from Him, we can't, but in Him, we can. Galatians 5 just lists a few of the fruits that we can bear as Christians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are just a few of the fruits that we are expected to bear. And those are internal emotions that lead to external actions. Jesus said they'll know you by by how you love, by the joy that you produce, by the way that you live that expresses these fruits. Jesus says in verses 6 through 8, that if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out. Speaking of someone who is lost, someone who does not know the Lord, obviously there is judgment apart from Christ. But he says to the believers, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. What is he referring to? That we might bear fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So he says, if you ask it, you'll receive it. And then he winks, winks, nudge, nudge. In verse 8, you want to know what God wants you to ask about? You want to know what God wants you to ask for? You know what glorifies God? I mean, God will listen to you ask for all these other things. That's fine. But you know what God wants to answer? He wants you to ask, Hey, Father, I want to produce these fruits. And he says, That's exactly what you need. And I'm here to help you do it. Because that's what proves that we are his disciples. Let me ask you. Are we proving to be his disciples from vine to branch to fruit? The vine has nothing wrong with it, right? The vine is Jesus. We're the branch. And we know what fruit He wants us to produce. So there's a disconnect between vine and fruit, isn't there? Are we proving to be His disciples from Him to us to our works? Jesus closes this section in verse 9. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love... These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, or that my joy may abide in you, and that your joy may be overflowing. So, why is Jesus telling us this? Our joy depends on it. Now, think about this before you ask God for something next time. Because we think our joy depends on what God will give us. And that might be true in some situations, but you know what we really should be asking God for? To connect vine, branch, and fruit to bring those fruits out of us that we might prove to be His disciples because that's what will bring us joy and fulfillment. on, Don't you feel better when the fruits that you produce are of the Spirit? Even if the fruits of the flesh are what you want to produce, you don't feel good about it, do you? Even if it's what somebody deserves, does it make you feel better? No. Our joy is on the line. All this is meant to elevate us beyond what we often settle for, so that we might enjoy a life enriched by His Spirit, a life equipped by His power that enhances our world. Simple enough? Why is Jesus teaching us this? So that you might enjoy a life enriched by His Spirit, a life equipped by His power that can enhance our world. God wants to enrich and equip every one of you so that you might enjoy life and that you might enhance your world. Simple enough, isn't it? I think we should be grateful for a vine dresser who has planted this true vine, who has made us his branches. The hard part's already done. Let's go out and produce the fruit that glorifies our Father, our Lord, this week. Let's go out and replace that rotten, wild fruit with fruit that glorifies and enhances our world. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for this really awesome teaching from you. God, I love teaching this text and these scriptures that are just so simple, that are so A to B to C. But God, as simple as this is, it's not always so easy in living out. Lord, I have a nature that produces some rotten stuff. But God, the Scripture says that in you, if we abide in you, and being a part of you, we can do the things that you want us to do. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But in you, we can do everything like the Father wants it. Father, help us to be people that produce the good fruit that is becoming of a Christian. Help us to replace anger with kindness, hate with love, greed with generosity, impatience with understanding, entitlement to self-control. Lord, help us to put, look at our world and see a world that is in need of your presence that we might receive from you as we're a part of the vine and go out and show the world what you have in store. God, we love you. We're thankful. We may, may you apply this to our hearts this week. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Hope you have a good night. We'll see you next time. God bless all of you.